You are listening to the East Point Church Sermon Podcast. We're a church that exists to glorify God as a gospel community that is growing in faith and reaching the world. From wherever you are listening, we hope that you are encouraged and challenged by today's sermon. Good morning, East Point Church. How are you guys? Good. Go ahead and open up your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 3. This is our second week in the series called The Movement, where Jesus showed up on earth, and he wasn't just building a moment. He wasn't just hyping a crowd for a day. He was building something that would outlast his entire time on earth. And so we're going to continue learning about this movement. We're in Mark chapter 3. We're going to pick it up in verse 20. Sam, are you sure you want to do this? Those are the last words I heard as I sat down in the barber chair and she was holding a zero razor over my head. All right. How many of you with no hair, you know what the zero is, right? No guard, right? I see you there. It's shining actually right now at me. You see, I was in eighth grade. I was, at, I was on the football team and we decided somehow that in order to get hyped for our big game, as big as it can get in eighth grade, as, to get hyped for the big game, we were going to shave our heads. Yeah! Now, you see, in the moment, it made so much sense, right? If we shave our heads, we will win. If we shave our heads, nothing can stop us. And now looking back, I'm like, what were we thinking, you know? If we shave our heads, it'll be an act of solidarity, and we'll get hyped, and we'll be unstoppable and scary, and so on and so forth. We lost 42 to 6. You see, I sat in that chair, and my barber, she looked at me like, are you sure you want to do this? And in that moment, friend, you have to understand, I was on the in crowd, right? Football player, middle school, the top of the food chain. I was in the in crowd, and if I wanted to stay in the in crowd, then I better shave that head. I better do what all of the other guys were doing. And I remember showing up with my head shaved, and we just all looked hilarious. But I had no choice. I had to cut it off. How many of you guys remember the in crowd? Come on, right? You remember the in crowd. The in crowd, growing up, we desire to be in. We want to be accepted. We want to be a part of something that is bigger than ourselves. Something that makes sense of our day-to-day, moment-to-moment. And so as children, as high schoolers, as college students, maybe for you at work tomorrow, right? We do what it takes to be a part of the in crowd. But here's the problem. What does it take? (laughs) You see, the in crowd, it's so elusive. It's almost as if the goal keeps changing and you don't really know what it takes on a given day to be in, but when you're in, you know it. And when you're not, you know it. It's hard to define, it's elusive, and yet we would do what it takes to be in. You see, friends, I'm thinking of that this morning because Jesus is building a movement. He is building this movement called the kingdom. And we've been learning here at East Point that the kingdom, the the rule and realm of God's leadership is expanding. It's growing. It is spreading over the globe. And as it does, it is restoring what was broken in the fall. 
Friends, this movement is so much bigger than you or me. It's like a divine drama that is calling us and compelling us to be a part of it. It's a grand narrative with which we can make sense of our lives and reality itself. And so we see in the book of Mark, with awe and wonder, we see the movement expanding. We see the kingdom growing. We see it going global. And as we see this thing spreading, we can't help but wonder. We can't help but ask the question, who is in this movement? Look at this movement. This is crazy. Who's in? Who's a part of the in crowd and who's on the outside? This is not just an academic question. This is not just a piece of theology that we should debate. This becomes deeply personal for you and me. Because as we see this movement, we're not simply asking, hey, who's in? But we start to wonder, am I in? Am I a part of the king's movement? Am I in the kingdom? Who is in this movement? And for the next few moments, Jesus, he's going to take away the ambiguity and the elusiveness that you and I felt in eighth grade. He's going to answer the question. He's going to remove the guesswork. He is going to reveal the in crowd. And guys, it's not what you would expect. The answer is not what you would expect. And I'm telling you right now that his answer is good news. Up front. This is good news, all right? Spoiler alert. He is coming to those of us who feel like we have no hope for ever being in, and he offers us hope. And he comes to those of us who need to be guarded against presumption, and he offers us perspective. And so would you, for the next few moments, ask this question with me? Who is in this movement? Are you ready to see it? You guys ready for the answer? Here we go, Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. This is God's word for us today. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, 
Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that you would open up our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word. Change us, Lord. Give us courage and faith to look at these things clearly and send us from here differently, Lord, than how we came in. Help us to love Jesus more. We pray this in his name. And the church said, amen. Amen. So you remember last week, right? We saw the crowd. Remember the crowd? Crazy amount of people in the crowd, a geographic influence. And once again, this week, Mark draws your attention to the crowd. The numbers are wild. There are so many people flocking to him. The crowd is so thick, even back at the house, that they couldn't eat. Too many people to eat. Friends, we see this week that Jesus is still turning the world upside down. And so the crowds are there. And you and me, we're not the only ones who have heard about the crowd. It says here that his family has heard. His family back in Nazareth, they've heard about the crowd. They've heard that their brother is now famous. They see him on the news when they turn it on in the evening. They go onto Twitter and they see their brother trending on Twitter. Hashtag Messiah Mania. Hashtag get to Galilee. Hashtag miracle worker. So they see this, right? They see their brother. They see the crowds. They see the influence. How do you expect Jesus' brothers to react? How do you expect Jesus' mother to respond to his increasing fame? Well, they see this and they come to a very weird conclusion. They say, well, clearly he is out of his mind. Do you guys see Jesus on the? Hey, G- has he not eaten? Has he not slept? What is going on? Is he crazy? He's taking crazy pills. Surely he's allowing so many people around him. He's getting these crowds in a frenzy. He's crazy. We need to do something about this. And so they get in the car. They start driving to Galilee. Why? Not for a nice visit. Not to have a little bit of lunch. Not to bring him a peanut butter and jelly. No, they go out to seize him. They're going to stop Jesus. It's not going to go well for anybody whose agenda, item number one, is let's go stop Jesus. Friends, do you see the irony of this situation? This is his family. The people that you would expect to understand him the best have missed it the most. The people that you would expect to be at the front of the movement, the people that you would expect to be in the core of this thing, they have come to a bizarre conclusion. They're not in the movement. They are actually setting out to stop the movement. His family, his very blood, shouldn't they have gotten it? Shouldn't the people who have known him the longest been most in the know? His family... And yet, friends, as we look at his family, we realize that your bloodline is no basis for belonging. Your family, your last name, your history is no guarantee of involvement in the movement. The people that are close to you don't necessarily guarantee that you are close to Jesus. 
You see, I grew up in a Christian home. I, I was blessed. I have two parents who are believers, and they have taught me how to love God and love people. They taught me to love the Bible. My wife, she's like fourth generation ministry, right? Like her grandparents' grandparents were in the ministry. You know what I mean? Like I, I remember I told my professor once, I was in Bible college, and I said, I have a crush on Jordan Owens. And he goes, that's good pedigree. And I'm like, not a dog? What are you talking about? Like we're breeding people. I'm like, it's exactly why. I did the genealogy test, right? Just great stock, you know? But it's like, we have history in the faith. We have religious history. We have tradition. Her last name meant something. And yet this morning, we are reminded of Jesus' family, that your family tree, your pedigree, the devotion of your family, their last name, it's not enough to ensure that you're in the movement. I remember my mom told me growing up, God has no grandkids, only children. Nobody gets to come to him to say, well, you know my mom, so we're cool. No, 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 we all must come to him as father. And so here's his family, flesh and blood, and they missed it. They missed it. Well, maybe if they were more educated, they would have got it, right? Maybe if they had more leadership acumen, maybe if they did more and knew more, maybe then they would get it. Maybe if they were more like the scribes, they would have been able to see and understand the movement. I don't know. Let's go see the scribes. Look what he says. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, you guessed it, is divided, he cannot stand. But is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. Just like Jesus' family, the scribes, they've heard about the movement. The scribes have heard all of the things that were happening. But unlike Jesus' family, they didn't hear about it by turning on the news. They didn't just see it on Twitter. Friends, these scribes were sitting on the front row of some of Jesus' miracles, remember? They were on the pew. They had a front row eyewitness a perspective of all that Jesus was doing. And yet their responses are stunning. Their response about Jesus is this. He's possessed by Beelzebul. Clearly, by the power of the prince of demons, he's doing these signs. Friends, God's king is accused of being Satan's prince. Realize they can't deny the power. They can't argue whether or not those were really miracles. They were there. They were eyewitnesses. They had proof. And yet, in their unbelief, they had to come up with a different way to explain it. Do you remember how Mark started 
his whole account? Who remembers, right? Mark started this entire narrative with Jesus' baptism. He started with the baptism because everything that was about to follow in this book needs to be understood in light of what happened in the water. And so Jesus, it's crazy, Jesus gets into the water and the Father in heaven calls him his son and gives him his spirit. Calls him his son and gives him his spirit. And as we see those two things, we realize, like the kings of old, we are witnessing a coronation ceremony. God is crowning Jesus, saying, this is my king. In the water, God is clearly uh, identifying who Jesus is. He's God's king, God's son. And you hear the scribes, and they refuse they refuse to believe that this really is God's king. There's no way this is God's king because if it was, we'd have to follow him and I don't want to lose my power and control. They refuse to believe it and so their unbelief forces them to come up with alternate explanations. And so they go, guys, 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 he's not doing these powerful signs because he's God's king with God's spirit. No, he's doing these things Because he's Satan's prince with Satan's power. Yeah, that's what's happening here. Guys, oh, you don't be duped. Here is the devil in flesh. Don't be duped. Here is a supernatural, demonic signs and miracles worker. Guys, keep following us. Don't follow the demon guy. Do you guys know that meme that says, like, think about it? Right? That's how I picture Jesus here. He's just like, That literally makes no sense, (laughs) you know? I think of my friends. Have you ever heard this where it says, I'll believe it. I'll believe it. Say it. I'll believe it. Yeah. No, you won't. No, you won't. Right? If I had proof, if I had evidence, if I could just like see some of those things, then I would believe it. And what we learn from the scribes here is that seeing proofs is no guarantee of faith. They saw the miracles. They heard the voice at the baptism. They had all the evidence they needed, but unbelief will always find a reason to justify itself. Okay? Later in the book, we find where where, uh, Jesus says to people, he goes, hey, even if a prophet rose from the dead, they wouldn't believe. And everybody's like, no, no, for sure, bro. If somebody rose from the dead, yeah, that's all I need. I would definitely believe. And then he rose from the dead. You see, friends, unbelief will always find a way to justify itself. The scribes' lack of belief, it teaches us that hard hearts are not cured by proofs. Hard hearts are not cured by proofs. And so Jesus, he responds to these accusations with a simple parable about a house and a kingdom. And again, I just picture him going, your explanation of me. Your interpretation of what I'm doing here in power and might makes zero sense. And so he says, think about it. If I'm an agent of Satan, right, God's adversary who is undermining God and advancing Satan's kingdom, then why would I be out here right now defeating evil and advancing God's kingdom? What? He's saying here, how can Satan cast out Satan Does it make any sense to think that Satan would be out here at cross purposes with himself? If Satan was divided against himself, 
he wouldn't stand. And therefore, evil would be done. And therefore, we're good, aren't we? Satan is evil, friends, but he's not stupid. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so he goes, that makes no sense. Let me give you the real explanation. Let me tell you what's actually happening here. Every time you see me confronting evil, confronting darkness, here's actually what's happening. I am not a prince of demons fighting against demons. I'm the savior king who has come into the strong man's house. I am the savior king who has come into Satan's house so that I can bind him and then plunder his house, rescuing all of the captives that he's been holding in his basement. He says, I'm not the prince of darkness. I'm the king who has come for the captives. What a powerful metaphor. Jesus is declaring to the entire crowd here. He says, I have come into Satan's turf. I am knocking down on his door in his territory so that I can dominate him and render him powerless. And once he's tied up in the corner, then I can go and rescue those that he held captive. Who does Satan have locked up in his basement? Who are the people that are under his control, slaves to his ways and under his influence? Who has Jesus come to rescue from the power of Satan? Every single one of us. Humanity. We are in chains, locked up in Satan's basement here on earth, and Jesus comes to do something about it. That's what this is. Romans chapter 6, look what Paul says. But thanks be to God that you who were once, past tense, once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. We all were once slaves of sin. And the result of our slavery to sin, the end of that was death. He says it a little bit differently in Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. Hi, my name is Sam, and I was born a slave to sin. Hi, my name is Sam, and I used to be a resident of the kingdom of darkness. Hi, my name is Sam, and I used to not obey the Holy Spirit. I would obey the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Hi, my name is Sam, and all of that is past tense. Because Jesus has come, and he has bound the strong man. And he has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. When we see Jesus, yes, when we see Jesus defeating darkness, when we see him in the text casting out demons, it's not a firework show to entertain you. He is triumphing over the powers that be in this fallen world to rescue you. He is breaking you out, liberating you from the slave masters of darkness so that you could live with him in light. And he says, that's what I'm doing. That's what these power displays are. Don't you get it? And the scribes say, no. They've missed it, guys. 
their hard-hearted response to Jesus warrants a dire warning. They have missed it. And so Jesus says this. He says, truly I say to you, whenever you see this formula, whenever you see this phrase in the book of Mark, it's as if Jesus is going, hey, lean in here, really important. Serious proclamation incoming, right? It's like, ding, 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 may I have your attention, please? And the room goes, shh, 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 Because what he's about to say is serious. It's not just flowery language. This is a warning. And so he says, truly, I say to you, what I'm about to tell you is for real. And he says this, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. He's looking to the scribes in the room who have just rejected the testimony about him. Looking to the scribes in the room who have just come up with these crazy explanations. And he says to them, truly I say to you, to reject the son is to reject forgiveness. It's common for people to read these verses and to fear that we might accidentally do something that is unforgivable. Anybody grew up in church and you were scared of these verses? I remember, you know, mom, what if I accidentally did the unforgivable sin today, you know? I remember there was actually this YouTube channel when I was growing up, when YouTube first came out, and it was like a bunch of teenagers that were like, today we're going to go out and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What? Is that what this is talking about? Do we really fear that we may end up in a situation where we're begging God for forgiveness, but he's just standing there with his arms crossed going, man, you've crossed the line. Whoa, pal, you've gone too far. I mean, I could forgive anything, but that, you've really pressed my buttons. Is that what's happening here? As if God is saying, I could forgive Moses for murder. I could forgive David for adultery and assassinating a guy in his army. I could forgive Peter for denying me three times, but you, you have found the limits of my grace. Is that what's happening here? No, it's not, friends. Let me explain. There is no such thing as a person who longs to be right with God, who longs to be forgiven, but is rejected. Let me say it again. There is no such thing as a person who longs to be right with God, who longs to be forgiven for something, but is rejected by God. Jesus, as he looks at the scribes here, he's describing a person who will have no forgiveness, not because God is withholding it, but because they are rejecting it. Okay? The Holy, let's think about it. The Holy Spirit is with Jesus powerfully and miraculously shining a spotlight on his identity. Everywhere Jesus goes, it's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, listen to me, this is God's king, spotlight. Listen to my testimony, listen to my witness, listen to my message. And yet, they are purposely ignoring the message of the Holy Spirit. They are irreverently rejecting the Spirit's spotlight and instead are attributing the Spirit's power to the power of Satan. They're saying, that's not the Holy Spirit. He has an unclean spirit. And so Jesus is very clear. He says, this person has no hope. This person never has forgiveness. Not because God is angry at them, but because they've rejected the only hope for forgiveness. To reject the Son, to reject the message of the Holy Spirit, is to reject forgiveness. 
To respond to God's son with unbelief is to cut off your only hope for reconciliation with God. So let me give you an illustration. If I said to you, this is the last plane leaving Easton Airport for the rest of forever. Get on, and all who reject that plane will be grounded forever. Are you grounding me forever because you're angry at me? No, I'm grounding you forever because you didn't get on the plane. You have cut yourself off from the only vehicle off of the ground. And in the same way, all who reject the Son, all who blaspheme and irreverently reject the message and the testimony of the Holy Spirit, what else can you turn to? What other recourse do you have if you've rejected God's only offer for grace? And so if the scribes, if you, if me, if I want to be right with God, if I want to be forgiven of my sins, we simply come to the King, Jesus Christ, spotlighted in power by the Holy Spirit, and we believe him. Because to reject him is to reject forgiveness. Does that make sense? Does that give you a little bit more understanding of of maybe a, a historically confusing verse? Here's a little help. If somebody ever uses a verse out of context to try to scare you, they're probably not interpreting it, right? You read it in context. He's using this verse, talking about something very clear. He's not leaving it up to guesswork. He tells us what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's to reject the testimony of the Spirit and to come up with your own explanation. It's to not believe Jesus. And so who's in the movement? Who is in this movement? Clearly, it's not the scribes. Clearly, it's not those who are the most learned and most busy. And before we move on, as you look at the scribes, realize, friends, that the movement is not made up of those who know the most and do the most. Psh, I mean, I've been going to church since I was, before I was born. You know what I mean? I've been going to church in the womb. And do you know how many things I serve on? Do you know I'm a leader in this church? Do you know who my parents are? Do you know how long my family name has been here? Do you know how much I give? Do you know how much I do? Do you know how early I was here this morning setting up these lights and speakers? And we look at the scribes and we realize doing the most and knowing the most don't guarantee entry into the movement. Your status, your theological education, those are not enough. Your religious activity and busyness is not enough. Those who do the most and know the most can still miss it. They can still miss it. And so if it's not based on your bloodlines, if it's not based on what you do and who you know and what you know, then who is in? Who is in this movement? And as we get to our final verses, we're just like, Jesus, would you just tell us already? (laughs) Just tell us. He says, I will. Let's look at it. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Jesus makes the distinction between inside and outside. You see, he's, he's keeping us from concluding, right? When we say, who's in the movement? He's, he's not allowing us to say, 
Well, just everybody. I mean, just all of us are in the movement. We're just all just, just be and just be there. And he doesn't allow us to go there. The historical Jesus, he's making a distinction. No, no, no. There are insiders and there are outsiders. There are people that are in the movement, part of the kingdom, and there are those who aren't. And then he's going to tell us how to figure that out. And so we come and his family has arrived. Remember, they concluded that he was crazy. So they're not here for a nice visit. They're not here for a social hour. They're here because they have set out to stop him at whatever cost. They're here to seize Jesus. Oh my gosh, Jesus is saying, I'm here to seize the devil. Right? I'm here to bind up the devil. And meanwhile, they're outside with their ropes going, all right, let's get him. You know, it's just the irony here. And so they pull up to the house. They jump out of the car, but they can't get to him. The crowd is too thick. And so they're like, oh. So they tap on a guy and go, hey, tell Jesus that his family's outside. Pass it down. Okay. Hey, Jesus' family's outside. Pass it down. Jesus' family. And in the greatest game of telephone in the history of mankind, the message gets all the way to the front of the room. And the buzz is there. And Jesus is like, what's going on? And they all say in unison, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. At this moment, we would expect Jesus to stop and immediately go to them, right? Oh, they're outside. Okay, hey, take five, guys. Potty break. Put down the microphone. I'm going to go see my family. He doesn't do that. He doesn't stop teaching. Surely their claim to Jesus trumps anyone else's, right? Surely, if there was an inner circle, surely if there was a movement, if there was a core of people who belonged to Jesus, wouldn't it be them? But he doesn't go to them. Instead, he sees this as an opportunity for an object lesson. How many of you like an object lesson? Me neither, never mind. He sees this as an opportunity for an object lesson. As his family is standing, waiting outside, here is the perfect moment to teach them about who is inside, okay? You want to know who my family is? You want to know who are my mother and my brothers? You want to know who's in this movement? Well, this is a perfect opportunity to give you the answer. And it says he looks around. He looks at those who were sitting on the floor around him, looks at those who are packing out the room, and he looks at them as if to say, here's the answer. Here is the answer. The very scene is an object lesson. Those who are literally outside of the house right now trying to stop me, not understanding who I am or believing me, those who think they know better than me outside, are outside of the movement, regardless of their bloodlines, regardless of their religious pedigree, regardless of their status, but those inside the house, those who are here listening to me, they're in. These complete strangers who maybe don't even know each other, who aren't related to me, who've never done an ounce of theological education in their life, here, these are the in crowd. Why? Because they believe him. And you see, friends, to be in this movement, you must believe in the Savior. To be in this movement, 
You must believe in the Savior. You see, his family out there, they didn't believe him. The scribes, they didn't believe him. But these people who are sitting at his feet, these are his people. This is Jesus' true family because they have come to him because they believe him. And how do we know they truly believe him? Because they obey the will of God. They are sitting at Jesus' feet, learning from him, saying, teach me how to obey God. Teach me how to live a life according to the design of humanity. Teach me how to follow God's ways and not my own. Here is the answer. These people believe in him. They believe he is who he said he is. They believe that his words hold the keys to eternal life. They believe that he is truly from God, the son sent to save. They believe that what he has to offer is better than life itself. They believe. And so we find them doing the very thing that he calls us to do. They are coming to be with Jesus. Remember last week? A disciple is called to be with Jesus and then is sent out by Jesus. And he says, here's my family. They're with me, sitting at my feet, learning from me how to walk and live. And then they are going out, sent by me to obey the Father. To be in this movement, you must believe in the Savior. And so here's the obvious follow-up question for you this morning, friends. Do you believe? Not what's your last name. Not what have you done at church lately. Not how many teams are you leading. Not how good is your resume. Not what's your longest streak from your latest addiction. Not what are you doing to make yourself look good. Do you believe? Was Jesus crazy? Was he a supernatural force of evil? Or do you believe that he is the son of God who has come to rescue us and to bring us into his kingdom? Do you believe? If you do, then come. Come to him. Come and be with him. Come and let him teach you the will of God. And friends, the moment that you cry out in faith, the moment that you say in your heart, I do believe, and you say with your mouth, Jesus, you are Lord, in that moment, jailbreak, and he transfers you, transfers you from the king of, kingdom of darkness. In that moment, he rescues you and he saves you and he says to the powers that be, mine, and he gives you a new record. You're free and forgiven. He gives you a new heart, no longer hard and cold, but a heart of flesh. He gives you a spirit to dwell in that heart, his Holy Spirit, making his dwelling with you. He gives you a new identity. You're his gives you a new purpose. He gives you a new family of brothers and sisters, and he gives you all of these things, not because you earned it, but because Jesus did, and you believe that he is enough. Friends, do you believe to be in this movement? You must believe in the Savior. Let's pray. Lord, every time we consider what you've done for us in Jesus Christ, we're blown away. Every time we take a fresh look at what we have in Jesus, we are moved, Lord, with just, wow. 
because your grace and your mercy and your love and your kindness, we just recognize this is so undeserved, Lord. Who are we that you love us? Who are we that you say, come and experience my grace and forgiveness? Lord, I thank you for this word today. Thank you for hope in the moments where we feel, man, there is no way I can be in that. There's no way I can stand a chance of being close to God, being close to Jesus. And yet we realize this morning the word to believe is just gives us hope. But then, Lord, there are those of us who have grown up in this thing, and we've, we know a lot, and we're busy, and we do things, and we have the bloodlines. And, Lord, it's so easy for presumption to sneak into our hearts. It's so easy to forget that when you found us, Lord, we were wretched. We were slaves to sin. So easy to forget that our admission into the family is completely through, by grace through faith. Not of ourselves, but a gift from God so that no man may boast. And so, Lord, through this gospel today, would you raise up the hopeless and would you lower the hearts of the proud? Would you give hope to those who felt far away and would you give perspective to those of us who are tempted by presumption? And may all of us in the same boat see Jesus for how good he is and to give him the rest of our lives, no turning back. We love you, Lord. You are our God, and we are your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. We want to thank you again for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. My name is Daniel, and I'm the music and creative pastor here at East Point Church. And if you were challenged, encouraged, or impacted in any way by this week's sermon, we would love to hear about it. It's your stories that encourage us and what we do, and we just want to celebrate what God is doing in your life. So you can go ahead and share with us at podcast at epeaston.com. Also, make sure that you subscribe to our channel to stay up to date with the latest sermons. Have a great week.